Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Emmons. Hello, I'm Kevin Emmons, your host for this episode of Walk Talk. Today, I'm joined by Ginny Hanchen to discuss a bit more from a recent webinar titled Peristomal Abscesses, Exploring Differential Diagnoses and Treatment Options. Ginny is a program director and senior nurse practitioner at UR Medicine Ostomy Services at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. She has 20 years of experience in the field of wound, ostomy, and continence nursing and 15 years experience in medical dermatology. She has proudly been employed by the University of Rochester Medical Center for over 30 years, and for the past five years, she has focused on the well-being of ostomy patients throughout the continuum of care, with long-term management being her love. Her true specialty is the interdisciplinary co-management of ostomy patients with complex medical and dermatological diseases such as psoriasis, eczema, IBD, cancer, and wound management in the peristomal region. This podcast and original webinar are supported by an educational grant from Hollister Incorporated. The WOCN Society does not endorse specific products and services. Thank you for joining us today, Ginny. My pleasure. It's great to be back again, Kevin. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. And as usual, we welcome you and all the knowledge that you are able to really share with us. And I know that our listeners enjoyed the last time we spoke, and so I'm happy to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about abscesses in the peristomal area. What made you pick this topic for the webinar? I think this is a topic, correct me if I'm wrong in your practice, but I mean, it appears when you walk into that room and you see a glaring abscess and your patient is in a ton of pain, and the first thing they ask is, why did I get this and what do we do about it? It's a problem that needs addressing, and it really needs an algorithm to be developed. So, of course, there's algorithms in our general community for an abscess on the back, the trunk, the neck, but working under that wafer is a whole different story. So, I chose abscesses as a way to talk to both patients and nurses about your approach to an abscess in a more methodical way. And hopefully we can help people get patients better sooner. Absolutely. And in the absence of those guidelines, like you mentioned, we're really stuck at expert opinion and what those are doing out there that have been successful. And so sharing this information is imperative until we get parastomal abscess guidelines that are standard. So, Yeah, I agree. And overwhelming end result in this algorithm that is to be determined is that you probably won't really know the underlying cause until you're done with your complete workup. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. Great. So jumping right into that, let's talk a little bit about the differential diagnoses for an abscess. Yeah, they can be many. And for the webinar, you know, I wanted our learners to learn at least three of them. But the most basic of abscesses start as small papules in like the form of folliculitis. 
So folliculitis is inflammation around the hair follicle, and it can be due to many things. You can get bacteria wrapped around the hair follicle base, and it can be either bacterial or fungal in nature. So you either have like staph or strep, or you might have pterosporum bacteria, which is a more fungal presentation around the base of the hair. So in the most simplest form of an abscess, this is how it all possibly can start and just expand. So, you know, when you remove that wafer and you see, like, let's say you have a man with a lot of terminal hairs on their abdomen, the coarse black hair, and you see little red bumps around the base of them, and you describe a folliculocentric papule with a hair coming out of it that's erythematous, you're in a sense diagnosing folliculitis. But then you might have to determine, you know, is it painful for the patient or is it itchy? Because if it's more painful, it's probably going to be bacterial. And if it's more pruritic, it's going to be more pterosporum-like. People that go in hot tubs or in the summertime, we get hot, warm, and moist under those wafers. And that can be breeding grounds for fungal infections as well. So in the most simplest form, folliculitis is where a larger abscess can start or it can end right there. It can be aggravated by irritation from shaving or friction from tight clothing or extended contact from adhesives such as the wafer or trauma to the skin from mechanical stripping. So folliculitis, just to kind of wrap that up, is, is usually easily cared for if it's caught early by using antibacterial soaps and possibly antibacterial lotions like clindamycin lotion. And we teach our patients, later on I want to talk about this, but we teach our patients to wash with water only, but is this really doing our patients a service? I'm not quite sure. And so if that gets out of control, we don't manage it, it can progress, or are we looking at different pathologies for furuncles and carbuncles eventually? So basically, you're looking at the same pathologies, usually bacteria, although if you have, so a furuncle is like one abscess, whereas a carbuncle is more than one connecting underneath the skin. And I always remember that because I think carbs, like we try not to eat carbs because there are too many carbs in our diet and it's too many. So I think of carbs as more than one connecting underneath the skin. But for uncle, you can have a sterile abscess for sure. And the national guidelines for treating a simple for uncle is just to incise and drain it. But if it's really significant or there's more than one coalescing under the skin and you have carbuncles then I, and the patient's in a lot of pain, you know, you're best to do a culture and see what kind of bacteria you have going on underneath the skin. Of course, we always want to remember that a tissue culture is a lot more sensitive, like 100% more sensitive than doing something like by Levine technique, where you're swabbing one square centimeter of an area after cleansing it off really good. And you can also get good cultures with furuncles and carbuncles and folliculitis by either cleaning out the surface bacteria, because that's not really helpful. You have to get down to the tissue using a blade to scrape a pustule or the side of the wall of the 
fur uncle or carbuncle to get a little more accurate of a tissue swab culture versus taking a section of the skin as you incise and drain it to send it off to the microbiology lab to see what exactly is going on, what's growing and what can we treat it with. So do you find yourself doing that pretty regularly as taking that sample instead of the Levine? Is that your regular practice now? It is. It is. Tissue culture sensitivity is superior. And because I'm a nurse practitioner, it's easy for me to do that. Now, if I were a certified woundostomy nurse as a registered nurse without an advanced practice degree, then I'm kind of left to do the Levine. And that's 80% accurate. So not a bad second choice. You know, it depends on where you're practicing and what your scope of practice is for sure. And so we talked a little bit about these infectious peristomal issues. How about some non-infectious like hematomas or seromas? Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe why you may see them? Yeah, it's becoming a lot more common actually. And that's why I wanted to talk about it in the webinar is all of our patients are in blood thinners now, right? They might have atrial fibrillation or be on a blood thinner for that reason. They might be post-surgical. And a lot of these new biologic immune agents that we're using do have side effects of blood clots, DVTs, especially in the oncology population. And so managing their blood thinners as they relate to a newly devised stoma, usually pretty new. We're bleeding underneath the skin, kind of out of control. If they get high INRs, they might start bleeding under the skin. Or if they have blood dyscrasias or disorders that affect their clotting time, they can certainly get blood clots under their skin. And it can cause tissue death and then ulceration, abscess, festering. And if the body can't quite break it down, which with a lot of these patients and their immune suppression, just don't have the ability to break down hematomas like they normally would, or a collection of just fluid under the skin post-surgical. Patients can get seromas or little foreign body reactions around deeper sutures that fester. So those are usually some non-bacterial driven, non-infectious reasons to get an abscess. With the hematomas that you see around the stoma, are you noticing that they're a bit smaller or they have you encountered any that needed to be debrided? What percentage do you think you're seeing that are severe hematomas versus not? I wouldn't say they're usually severe. It usually encompasses an area of two to three centimeters or two by three centimeters, but still significant when you talk about the surface area of the footprint of the wafer. If you have a disruption in your skin health that's two centimeters long by three centimeters wide, that can take up the majority of one side of your wafer. And then patients have adherence problems. So the severity is not huge overall in the grand scheme of things and life and serious illnesses, but it does affect people's quality of life when they can't get their wafer to stay on. Absolutely. And I know the threshold now, we have these really great anticoagulant medications that don't require a lot of monitoring. So I feel like we see more patients anticoagulated. Maybe it's because the ease of anticoagulation therapy. But once that blood gets between the epidermal dermal layer, are you noticing a lot of stripping that can occur because of the hematoma in that layer? Yes, because remember, 
yeah, baseline, we're going to have mechanical stripping every time we remove the wafer. And if the skin is compromised in the vascularity because of the underlying hematoma, then it's going to eventually break down. And so it's hard to hold a moist, warm pack for help patients self-absorb these hematomas. But then you're left with waiting to see if it doesn't look like the skin is going to be able to repair. Then you need to debride that away and get the clot out. And managing anything other than Coumadin is a little bit tricky. I mean, it's great that patients don't have to have so many INRs done. But then when they have senile purpura all over their arms and on their legs and then under their wafer, what's the regulation of it? Do you skip one pill every day? And it's just not as calculated as what we can do with Coumadin dosing, per se. Right. Absolutely. And so let's think about some chronic disease-related peristomal issues for differentials. Well, the one that seems to be more and more prevalent, and I don't know if you've noticed this through, especially through the pandemic, is diverticulitis. We've had a ton of younger and younger folks getting diverticulitis and perforating them and having fecal contamination in their pelvis and then having to go for a colectomy, you know, reanastomosis, diverting ostomy of some kind, either usually in that situation, it's going to be a colostomy because it's such an emergent situation. The patient is near septic at that point. So they usually do the easiest thing, which is colostomy, which still leaves the stoma and nearby diverticulum in the area of the peristomal skin. And so we've seen a lot of diverticular disease as patients continue to have microabscesses and or pelvic fluid collections that are remaining after surgery. And the path of least resistance is peristomally where the stoma is brooked to the skin. A lot of time we'll have little abscesses form underneath the skin and come out in the peristomal area. This has been a big problem lately and all starting with diverticulosis, which half of America has. Uh, definitely more common in the 50s and 60s years of age, but becoming more and more prevalent in younger years. I can't tell you the number of 30-somethings that we've had the last four or five months in our hospital in upstate New York with diverticular disease. So anyways, you get this abscess and you have to determine through careful history taking of your patient why they had their stoma in the first place when you're looking at the abscesses to see could diverticulitis be the underlying cause of this abscess. So that's one. And then uh, we can move into some other autoimmune non-infectious diseases like hydradenitis. Hydradenitis is a disease of the apocrine glands and also can affect the lower abdomen as well as the axilla and groin and intramammary regions of a person's body. And so I have had some patients with real prevalent history of hydradenitis that usually are under treatment for them before they have their said stoma for whatever reason. It's not the reason they have the stoma, but patients that have one autoimmune disease usually have another, whether it's thyroid disease, Crohn's, colitis. And so I have a a few patients with a history of hydradenitis that also have Crohn's disease. So again, careful history taking (laughs) is 
how you might consider hydradenitis as one of those things. Have you ever seen hydradenitis localized to atypical areas like the abdomen without impacting the armpits and groin region, just as a side note? It can be a mild case of hydradenitis of the lower abdomen without axillary or inframammary. Or maybe if you really examine a patient's history, they'll say, yeah, I've had a boil under my arm once in my life. Again, careful history taking. Usually they have something. And hydradenitis can also be irritated by friction and rubbing. And think about the waistline. The waistline, where the stoma is usually located, (laughs) friction and rubbing. Mostly patients won't call it hydradenitis. But they'll say, yeah, I get boils on my belly from time to time. And I think it's from my belt being too tight or my waistline rubbing up and causing irritation kind of thing. Yeah, I have seen it a little bit. And how about in our Crohn's colitis patients? Yeah, cutaneous Crohn's. It's pretty rare. And we mostly think of cutaneous Crohn's or enterocutaneous fistula in the Crohn's patients in the perianal area. but they can develop it around the peristomal area as well. And that's where you get into talking about PG as well. Is this Crohn's, cutaneous Crohn's that's not managed? So the patient has a history of Crohn's and they're not on treatment right now. The key to that is talking with a gastroenterologist and seeing what's going on with their treatment plan and getting them back on course as soon as possible, if that's the case. But yes, there is an affinity to the Crohn's patient to develop abscesses, either on the abdomen or in the perianal area. So I don't work with the perianal ones, but certainly in the peristomal area. And you touched a little bit about PG. Anything you want to add regarding PG as well? Yeah, you know. We could talk three hours about PG, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think In my lecture in November and in the podcast we did last year talking about peristomal blistering disorders because pyoderma is a blistering disorder as well. And in the new core chapter, we should people should be starting to get used to hearing the diagnosis of pyoderma guidelines have kind of changed a little bit. There was a Delphi consensus of international experts that put out a paper in JAMA which is a dermatology, saying that in order to diagnose pyoderma, you have to biopsy the edge of the abscess or the ulcer to demonstrate a neutrophilic infiltrate. And then they should have four minor criteria following that. And that is an exclusion of everything, right? Infection, you have to look at their history. If they, so if they don't have any infection, they have a history of IBD or inflammatory arthritis, a history of a papule pustule vesicle or ulceration within four days of appearing ulcer. If they have the erythema, the violaceous purpuric hues, undermining borders or tenderness, of course, pain is one of the hallmark symptoms of pyoderma. And then a couple more things, they could have multiple ulcerations, one being on the leg or cribriform scars, sprinkling of the skin. So these are all examples of what it takes to diagnose somebody with pyoderma. About 50% of patients that have pyoderma have an underlying 
autoimmune disease, such as arthritis, leukemia, metabolic syndrome, Bayseps disease, a lot of different rheumatoid arthritis. So these patients have many other inflammatory autoimmune conditions. And so the patient, you know, with Crohn's and colitis fit in that category, but there's also such a thing as postoperative pyoderma too. And that's going to happen probably within eight to 10 days of surgery. And that's going to be the most aggressive, painful abscess type formation that's going to happen. So that's not very common in itself, but that post-op pyoderma is what's really associated with pathogy when we talk about debride or not to debride a patient with pyoderma. Only 30% of people really have that pathogen. And that's good to know because I know the first thing we always teach is don't disturb, don't disturb. And then you see all this necrosis and you get itchy and antsy to kind of clean it out. So that's always a positive. Yeah. Facilitate your healing. Yeah. And when we think about the approach and the workup to figure out what it is, I just am reflecting back on a bunch of things that you said, and I'm curious what your process is. You're doing your differential in your head while you're looking at it. And you've looked at the patient's charts. When you are getting the edge of the lesion to send for a culture, are you also at the same time grabbing some to get a pathology report? Or is that not very common that you are doing both right away? Absolutely. If you're going to go to the extent of numbing somebody up to get a tissue culture for micro What I generally do is an excisional biopsy of the edge of the lesion. You don't want the tissue that's hanging over the ulcer. That's not really good for much of anything. You can kind of discard that. But you want the edge of the wall of the ulcer. And then I usually split it in two. And I send part of it to micro and part of it to pathology to see if there's that neutrophilic infiltrate or not through doing the H&E. So yeah, you kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. You numb them up, you debride the overhanging issue, the edges of the ulcer so that you can facilitate your healing. It'll do it. It's on its own, but it'll take you two months <laughs> to kind of wear away. How many millimeters are you going beyond the margin and how many millimeters down do you think? So you definitely, you know, a pathologist will always tell you that they prefer four millimeters or more. You can either draw it out with a ruler at the time you're marking your site. So maybe you're getting eight millimeters of tissue and sending it half to micro and half to pathology or splitting it six and two. You don't really need that much for microbiology. And as far as depth, you want to get down into the subcutaneous fat layer, at least, because there are other differential diagnoses. You know, you could have some kind of vasculitis. If you can get some of the blood vessels that feed the area, they're able to tell, is there any clotting disorder going on there as well? So I would say four by four would be great as a general rule. Usually at our conferences, you know, we say we get a biopsy, and this is the detail that I think people love to hear is, well, what exactly are we grabbing? And for the newer WOC NPs or NPs in general, we don't learn in NP school generally how to biopsy. And so four by four is a really great 
estimate for what's required. And I guess we learn quickly when pathology sends it back and says, you didn't meet the needs. And then you have to come back, bring the patient back and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and repeat that whole process. Oh, disappointing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's really good info. And are you worried about when you numb your patients up, are you worried about the infiltration in the biopsy area? Or can you give us a little bit of information about maybe a little bit of your technique? Sure. Because that really is a great question. These patients are in a lot of pain to begin with. And any tissue that's so inflamed doesn't really take up numbing medicine. You know, lidocaine with epinephrine is what I use. It doesn't take it up as well. So a good healthy dose of lidocaine with epinephrine. And so I'm usually using six to nine cc's of lidocaine with epinephrine. And I'm going around the ulcer, kind of like a ring-like block. And I will put a little bit in the middle, but that's not usually because I'm going to go and possibly curette or cauterize the base of the ulcer also. But the ring-like block usually leaves people pretty well anesthetized. And if you do that and let your lidocaine with epinephrine sit adequately, maybe five minutes, 10 if you can, it's going to work better for you. So I usually draw out around the ulceration just with a surgical marking pen and follow my lines all the way around, right up to the stoma mucocutaneous junction. You should be aware probably... (laughs) Definitely. That, you know, if you get lidocaine with epinephrine into the vascularity that feeds the stoma, you risk compromising the stoma. I've had the stoma blanch a little bit or part of the stoma blanch a little bit, but because it is so vascular and it wears off so quickly within 45 to 60 minutes, usually that's not an issue for the overall health of the stoma itself, but definitely something to be aware of. And do you notice with the epinephrine, it's enough vasoocclusion to not have to cauterize as much after, or just a little bit of pressure is what you are experiencing? Yeah. The key of a good surgical technique is to use that cautery device as little as possible. You have to use it to stabilize the ulcer bed, then make sure you're taking off some of the eschar that you leave behind because that gets in the way of wound healing. So we usually just do focal cauterization of any problematic areas, a lot of pressure. And usually patients do very well after surgery with this. And then I send them home with an ice pack and some Tylenol and avoid anything that can thin the blood, just normal procedural stuff. And so since this isn't normal things that are taught in NP school, did you learn this from your surgical practice colleagues or conferences? How did you go about really developing your expertise in this area? Well, I was so fortunate to have 15 years of medical dermatology where we did a lot of a lot of biopsies. We burn off a lot of things with a hyphricator. I spent years removing small skin cancers as well, doing, you know, small excisional biopsies. So that's where I got my training. But there are some workshops available. Well, back in the day when we could go to a live um, (laughs) conference and have a workshop, uh, you would learn certainly the proper use of electric cautery and suture techniques, elliptical incisions, that kind of stuff. So that has served me well over the years. The best idea in today's age, especially given the pandemic, is to pair up with a local dermatologist and 
probably possibly easier done in an academic setting because you can reach out and touch your local department versus trying to get into a private dermatology office to learn the trade is a little bit more tricky when it comes to hands-on experience for sure. And I feel a webinar or live conference session developing here for conference one year, Ginny. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Everybody break out their ConMed hyphricators. Exactly. (laughs) We're going to char some oranges today. (laughs) Hey, you know, fruit has been our go-to for cutting up. Yeah, if you haven't gotten pig's feet, (laughs) we're whipping out the fruit. Yeah, it would be a great thing to do, honestly. There's nothing like hands-on experience. So. Yeah, and to learn from people who have the years and the experience to guide you is invaluable to say, you know, this is what we normally see because that lived experience is so helpful, so helpful to all of us. So Yeah. Oh, by the way, wound clinics are another great place to learn debridement. Like in our wound clinic at the University of Rochester, we have an acute care clinic and they work on a lot of patients that have abscesses of the back and neck and legs and bellies and things like that. So definitely if you're in any way associated with an academic program, you can usually find a place to go hang out a couple of days. And so here we are, you spoke about all these differentials and you talked a little bit about the RN's role, especially with getting samples and some NP roles. Let's move out to some treatment guidelines. What resources are out there for anyone looking for some guidelines, if there are any? Yeah, that's the thing. And growing up in the field of dermatology where everything is used (laughs) off-label, it's uh, a lot of these autoimmune diseases we treat have off-label treatments. But one of my favorite resources is a web-based program called Visual DX. And the parent company is Logical Images, but they have a mobile app. You know, it's the modern day version of Fitzpatrick (laughs) where you can pull out a derm. Remember all the days, everybody loves the derm books where you look something up and you figure out how to treat it there. But there were 2000 pages and you were... (laughs) Exactly. It made a great paperweight. I have a whole bookshelf of three inch books that I haven't touched in approximately 10 years. So (laughs) there must be a place for them in heaven somewhere. (laughs) But anyways, Visual DX is one. I'll frequently go to the NIH for the latest publications and treatment guidelines. They have a lot of great stuff and, you know, worthy resources and just really reputable people writing these articles and a lot of consensus statements. So you'll see a lot of my resources will be from the NIH. Are they putting out any preventative recommendations? And are they saying, I don't know how much literature has been done on resolution, whether it's similar to basic wound healing, depending on the patient's physiologic status and wound. So are we seeing preventative and how long are you seeing for these to heal? So healing, if you don't debride one of these abscesses and you're letting it take its own course, you're talking four to six months sometimes. It takes a good six to eight weeks for that dead tissue to fall away for the ulcer to what I call reveal itself. But if you can do it surgically and the first time the patient comes through the door, then you can facilitate the healing by six to eight weeks. So it takes several months for these patients to heal. And it depends on how aggressive you are with the therapy and what you can find out for the diagnosis. 
if it's infectious in etiology and you can treat it with an antibiotic, it's going to heal a lot quicker. We're going to do what we do as great WOC nurses. And we're going to use our advanced wound care products. I love the hydrofibers with silver. I love the blue foams, the PVC foams. I always isolate these ulcers so that we can get a good seal, improve the quality of life. But as far as preventing them from coming back again, I guess if it's infectious in nature, we're going to move them to something antimicrobial as kind of prevention. I'd love to see some research done on the use of soaps around the peristomal area because, you know, we teach water only, water only, water only in our programs. And I do think we might be doing a disservice to our patients. Now, yes, the concept all makes sense not to dry from using too many drying agents, not too moist from all of the moisturizers we have in our soaps. Got to be careful of allergic reactions to all the 20 billion chemicals that are in a bar of soap or a pump of soap. But I think that there's a balance somewhere, maybe using a mild soapy solution as a surfactant to get the bacteria off the hair follicles, out of the skin pores. That is not evidence-based, but I'd love to invite someone to research that for sure. Listen, Jenny, I am making a list of things for you to do. This is number two. Well, the first thing is the... Um, All right, see you soon. I'm going to close my mouth. <laughs> so putting Jenny's future kind of hat on, speaking of research, what do you see as the opportunity for research? So you mentioned the soap is one. I think that's a fabulous idea. Is there anything else that in your crystal ball you would like to see in the future to then drive some research, put it out there for people to hear? As far as abscesses or in general? Yeah, abscesses or general peristomal care. Yeah. For abscesses, I think that if we can kind of bring back some of the antimicrobial powders that we used to have or antibiotic powders that we can put in ulcers to see if that is any benefit. That's something I'd like to see. I'd like to see, you know, wafer-infused treatments, different wafers with either steroids or anti-inflammatory agents or like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents and wafers. All kinds of R&D stuff. All great ideas, but terrifically expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not going to come to fruition, but fun stuff. We're submitting some research for prevention of peristomal hernias, which is not necessarily new. There's been some research on how to prevent them through exercises, but we're trying to come up with an actual protocol for an exercise regime for prevention of peristomal hernias. and. Yeah, I think there's lots of research needed for dietary advice for especially ileostomy patients and how to prevent malabsorption syndromes and how to lose weight successfully. Lots of things. Well, I'm excited to hear about what comes out of that study that you guys are pursuing. So I think that's a great start for a lot of clinicians. Those results will be really helpful. Yes. Anything anyone can do. So to our listeners, if you have the means, especially if you work in an academic institution, I think taking, you know, a subset of 40 patients and 
you know, using a mild soap with one and water only in the other should be a relatively easy study. But when you go looking for the research, (laughs) I might be missing it, but I couldn't find any. (laughs) Yeah. So again, we're going to add that. I'll be emailing you and looking for those results in about six months. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put my new nurse practitioner on that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You need a nurse practitioner resident to get them in. Yeah. Well, Jenny, as usual, you are so full of knowledge and I could pick your brain all day long and just sit here and talk with you, but I won't take up too much of your time. Is there anything you want to end with for our listeners? No, I just, I once again, thank you for having me. I am amazed that the interest for ulcers and peristomal abscesses continues, and I'm happy to provide that information just from my own clinical experience. I feel so honored to be able to have a clinic in the outpatient setting and just want to push any CWOCN to continue their education and go on for their NP and let's take it up a notch because we can and we can help our patients so much more assertively and aggressively just being able to call the shots ourselves. Great advice. Well, Ginny, thank you for joining us today and I look forward to our future conversations. Oh, thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. <laughs>